So what I've, I've attempted to do since I started the company is like create a team around myself of people that may not actually be employees of Marlowe's Bake Shop, but people that I can lean on for when I am experiencing the stress and then, you know, sharing the, the highs with these folks and, and then sh- sharing the lows and trying not to like live in my, in my own tunnel and bubble. The Food Startups Podcast. You just need the packaging to shout off the shelf. It's a different world when you actually think about adding value. But to be able to play now is definitely going to require some new thinking out there. Hang out with us and learn how to grow your food business. She landed in San Francisco by way of New York City. In years of work in the digital marketing and ad tech space, um, and once she was relocated, she realized that her passion was in baking and enrolled in a professional pastry education program. Today, she has expanded that recipe and now sells five flavors of the contemporary twist on traditional biscotti with over 10 or actually 10 SKUs. She is committed to baking with the highest quality premium ingredients and to sourcing them locally, like California walnuts. She believes that wholesome indulgences made with clean ingredients are part of a balanced approach to eating and enjoying everything in moderation. Marlowe's Bake Shop was formally launched in 2012 with her Russian grandmother's secret cookie recipe as the debut product. But this ain't your grandma's biscotti. Marlo Judici, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Good. I uh, I enjoy preparing for this episode, the YouTube channel, and then the, the Sweet and Salty podcast, which we will talk about later. Just looks like some amazing food. Yeah, it's been really fun kind of exploring alternative recipes we can make with our products and, and then just sharing that creativity with the world. And I love having a guest on the show that has a podcast because, as you know, it, it takes effort and work to put out a, a quality show. And we're both in the food business, which is not easy either. So um, I commend anyone that, that goes the podcast route. Absolutely. It is not easy, <laughs> but it's fun. Yeah. And did, so were you someone that was like hesitant or scared to hear your, how your own voice sounds on the podcast? Definitely. Every time I hear myself I'm like, is that is that how I sound? Is that really me? <laughs> um, and I've gotten a little bit more used to it at this point because we have the YouTube channel as well. So both seeing myself on film and then hearing myself was a little bit of a shocker at first, but I've, I've come to terms with it sounding different than it does in my head. You have to. And it's funny. So Marlo, uh, one is I will say uh, you have like a good presence uh, on camera and, and on sound. So congratulations on that. But two, I've had guests on my show that have, uh, I've had two guests so far. I've done about 100 interviews and uh, they've told me I, I can't listen to this episode. I'm sure it's awesome. I just hate hearing, like it's like this, there, I'm sure there's like a technical word for it, but it's like phobia of hearing your own voice. So I have a couple of guests that I've even listened to their episode and they've shared it with other people because they don't want to, they don't, they can't bear how their own voice sounds on iTunes. I totally get it. I mean, I, I try and um, just, take the approach of like, okay, this is going to be a learning experience of how maybe I can improve the next time I'm on camera or the next time I'm recorded. There are, you know, words to avoid or things like that. <laughs> Pausing and saying, uh, or, um, so 
So I always just try and take it as a learning experience. That's the best way to do it. Luckily, my editor, I have this problem saying like, you know, or like, or us, and he, he takes most of them out. But a lot of people don't realize when you're recorded, your English is not as good as, as it is in your head when there's no one like with a mic around you. And, uh, and Marla, so, so are you a New Yorker? I'm actually a Jersey girl. Jersey <laughs> girl, okay. Yeah, so I, I grew up in, um, in northern New Jersey. I was, I was born here in San Francisco, but uh, my family moved shortly thereafter. And so I, I grew up in um, a town about 35 minutes outside of Manhattan. And then I went to, um, to school. I did my undergrad uh, education in Manhattan, and then and then I moved to Europe because I was like, forget this, uh, and, and spent a year teaching abroad, um, and then came back to New York, and then eventually got out to, to California. So, um, so yeah, New Jersey at heart, and proud of it. Awesome. And and uh, where in Europe? I was in a city called Tours, um, about an hour and a half outside of Paris. Um, I had studied abroad in Paris um, when I was in college and it was some of the most enjoyable months of my life and I love French culture and I was a French major in college and so um, I, I took the opportunity uh, after working a year when I graduated to kind of tap into the, the French embassy system and see if I could be an English teacher um, somewhere in France and so I got placed um, in this region of France that's known for actually having the purest form of the language um, which is really when I had the opportunity to I wouldn't say I became fluent, but um, I became as close as I probably will ever be to being fluent in French at that point. So it was amazing. So I'm not going to pretend to try to, to uh, pronounce the name of that town you're at, but just like the image that comes to my head, it seems like a picturesque, like France, like a French uh, European town, <laughs> small was. village. That's awesome. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And it was on the Loire River. So is the Loire River Valley. And so all that whole region is wineries and well mostly vineyards um and chateaus and it's just a stunning part of the world so i was very lucky to have had the opportunity right on yeah it's cool because for in our business we get to go to europe once a year and so i'm finally starting to explore it and it's it's so much fun and there's so much difference between all of the uh, the countries there yeah but uh marlo i, I want to move on and and get into biscotti so i mentioned this a couple times now and i have this image of biscotti where it's very like hard and crunchy and uh you know gets crumbs on you and but you can eat it with coffee uh you call it soft baked biscotti but in certain ways it's kind of similar to a cookie yeah so our our product um as you mentioned in your intro um is is based on my russian grandmother's secret recipe so we we don't do a traditional italian biscotti and, and that's Primarily because I'm I'm not Italian, despite despite my last name being Judici, um, I actually come from a Russian and Lithuanian background, and so so Eastern European bakers, which is what my grandmother is, um, traditionally bake with oil instead of butter as the primary fat, uh, and so I didn't really change her recipe, and she had made these twice baked cookies, which means you you make the batter, you bake it once uh, in this loaf form. So you basically mold the dough into this one long loaf, you bake it, uh, you slice it down once it's cooled and you bake it again. So it's, it's literally twice baked, baked twice. And the result that you get from baking with oil instead of butter is a, is a more tender texture of whatever you're making. So if you made a, an apple cake or you made any type of cake, really a loaf cake, uh, and you used oil instead of butter, you'd get a really moist crumb. You don't get that big butter bomb flavor 
um, it just allows the other flavors to kind of come through uh, more strongly. And so she had this recipe that uh, my whole family had been addicted to, and she wouldn't give anybody the recipe for years and years. And it was something that she had developed for uh, an after-school snack for my dad and my uncle in the 50s. And um, it was sort of a, a rite of passage when you got your own tin from, from grandmom of these cookies. And I got my first one in college. And I locked myself in my dorm room and I basically ate the entire tin and did not share them with my roommates. And so she passed the recipe down to me and I started making them uh, for fun because I'd always loved to bake. And my mom encouraged me. She's like, you should, you should really sell these. Like these are almost better than your grandmother's. And, uh, and so, yeah, so they, they're, they're almost a cookie eating experience, but in this form factor of a traditional biscotti. So it's still great to dunk and dip into a cup of coffee or tea or, or wine, which I think a lot of traditional Italian biscotti is what it's dunked in, sort of this vin santo, or this very sweet wine for dessert. Um, and then it will retain its integrity, but what differentiates our product is that more tender texture. So we like to say ours has a, a pleasantly tender crunch. And so for people that really love traditional biscotti, it still delivers that satisfying crunch that they're looking for but for people that may be a little bit more wary of their that perception of biscotti like you just told me uh we we like to say soft baked because that really conveys the texture uh, more than more than biscotti on its own would i love that and i think it's so cool i've gotten recently in my, my last trip to europe kind of inspired this because i like my mom's side of the family is somewhere around i know the borders have changed a lot but like poland austria mm-hmm. ukraine and it's so cool that you're able to, like, just like the the heritage, like bring back something from your grandma and put it on shelves in in 2016. That's that's really awesome. I also wanted to touch something from the intro. I get a lot of questions about like I don't know if this is my passion, and I tend to follow Cal Newport, who wrote "So Good you, They Can't Ignore You," and he just talks about you kind of need to try a bunch of things, and once you get good at something, then it becomes your passion. I'm not sure if you. You agree with that, but uh, I'd like you to go into the moment where you realized that baking was your passion. Um, I, you know, I don't know that there was a specific moment. I, I, baking was always something that I enjoyed from a very young age. Uh, my my mom really allowed me free range. My mom and my dad allowed me free range in their kitchens, and uh, you know, primarily to make a mess. <laughs> but you know, they'd be right behind me cleaning up everything as I went, and I I think. When I look back on that, what I really enjoyed most, I, I clearly loved eating it. I'm, I'm a big food person, but I also loved just sharing it with people, whatever I made, whether it was brownies or cookies or pies. I just, I loved the idea of being able to, people go, ooh, wow, and then be like, that's so delicious. And, and that was what really would encourage me to try the next recipe. And so when I was working in digital marketing and in advertising technology, I, I still, you know, that'd sort of be a, a way for me to de-stress. I would bake at night or I'd bake something on a Sunday. And then, you know, I certainly didn't want it to sit around in my apartment because then I just eat it all. So I was able to bring it into the office and share it with with colleagues and um, and then having that same experience of them being like, wow, that was really great was always really rewarding for me. And so I went into this professional pastry program because I thought I I, I clearly don't I'm not passionate about, um, you know, the role that I'm in right now. And and let me explore this hobby that I've, I've always really enjoyed and see if it is something I want to pursue in a more full-time capacity. And I found this program in San Francisco that fortunately was part-time because I really wasn't ready to, to quit my job and to dive into a full-time culinary program and, and, and the debt that would go along with that most likely. So this was a program that was on nights and weekends. And so I was able to still work a full day 
um, and then have this really rich, um, rewarding, meaningful six-month experience with 12 other women. Um, and I thought, this is, this is really awesome. And I'm having so much fun, and I'm learning a lot. But I think what most motivated me to, to start a food business within baking was the other women that had gone through the program that I did and who had graduated and started very successful brands. And I thought, gosh, they've done it. Um, I have this secret family recipe that I know, you know, everyone who's ever tasted it has loved. How hard can it be? You know, obviously, like a certain degree of naivete and ignorance is needed to, to jump into this industry. Because totally. if I knew, if I knew then what I know now, I may have been, you know, too leery of it or been like, well, that's just too hard, um, or that will take too long, or, um, or I just don't know. And so, so Marla, I, I want to touch two things really quick before we continue yeah. the story. So, uh, one, I'd say I've asked a lot of people about their transition. This was a very, very smooth transition. And listeners, especially some of the questions I get about some people are like, uh, oh, well, I'm just going to go all in and do this. And that does work for some people. But you were able to make like this half a year transition, sharpen your skills while keeping your job. So I, I think that's a really interesting option. So you don't have to go all in. You also need to have some type of, of additional effort. And by doing that six-month program, it definitely forced you to put in the, the hours refining your, your, banking, uh, your baking techniques. And then I, I guess I wanted to follow up really quick. If I knew then what I know now, what are some of the you know, two or three things that you learned that were kind of not part of your expectations when you got into this business? Well, so I would say just the the sheer vol- like the amount of capital needed to pursue the grocery channel for one, I, I didn't have any sort of knowledge of. Um, I, I thought you know I'm going to create this really premium product with amazing ingredients, and it's going to be a very boutique brand, um, and we're really going to be in you know specialty stores and and premium gift shops. And then I kind of quickly realized like your volume is is somewhat limited when you focus so so much on being in in small stores like that and so I said okay well we need to now move to grocery so I think um the capital needed um the I guess the emotional roller coaster that it would be and and the ups and downs that I would experience I I had no sense of and just you know the how how long it could take to attain success and like, you know, and, and even still it's like, well, that, that definition of success kind of almost changes on a monthly basis for me. And it's like this moving target and one, you know, one day can feel successful. And then the next week you can feel like it's, it's not successful at all. And so having that sort of like shifting metric or like definition of what you're chasing is, is always hard. But I, I, you know, just to go back to what you were saying about a smooth transition, like I, I still then worked a, a full-time job for another year like after launching the business I, I just needed to have a more financial financially like full kind of safety net for myself for when I did quit my job and I I didn't have that at that point when I graduated culinary school so I think you know for a lot of people like it was a very slow transition it was smooth but it took me about 18 months until I fully dove into Marlowe's Bake Shop full-time got it yeah and I think that's a really good point and just to give listeners a, a perspective Let's just say, um, like, how would you compare? Because, I mean, still, a full-time job can be stressful, right? But just yeah. compared to being an employee, like the, uh, 
like the variance of stress, you know, highs and lows, how much higher are the highs and how much lower are the lows running your own bake shop compared to working in digital advertising? Oh God. I mean like hundreds of thousands of times. I It's because I, everything seemingly rides on my shoulders in this, in this job. Whereas I had, you know, I had a team, I had a really, a really robust team uh, when I was working at this software company and I, I had a phenomenal manager. And so what I've, I've attempted to do since I started the company is like create a team around myself of people that may not actually be employees of Marlowe's Big Shop, but people that I can lean on for when I am experiencing the stress and then sharing the the highs with these folks and, and then sh- sharing the lows and trying not to like live in my, in my own tunnel and bubble and sulk about the lows. But um, because being an entrepreneur can be extremely insular. So a hundred X, a hundred X the stress and the highs and the lows for sure. That sounds about right. And yeah, the, the insular <laughs> part is, is, is worth noting as well. Um, sometimes it can be difficult to relate to non-entrepreneurs, not because they're any better or worse, but it, it is, um, and it's all perception, but there's tons and tons and tons of ups and downs. And uh, the way you respond to those, I think it's very like NFL, kind of like a football, but it's like the way you respond to these ups and downs and especially in the, the low points can, can define the success of your business and however you define success. And Marlo, you mentioned money and the cost. Grocery, you know, grocery is really, really expensive. So you actually have gotten, I mean, you've done a Kickstarter. You've also done a Kiva zip loan. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So specifically about Kiva? Yeah. Like what was your experience like with uh, with Kiva and getting the loan off? It was great. It was, I think, maybe like five or six weeks total between like first having a conversation with um, someone on the Kiva team to actually having the money in my bank account. And they were incredibly supportive along the way, very open to making recommendations and suggestions and saying, here, you know, now it is another great time to communicate with your your lenders and their platform is really easy to use. And and I still feel like it kind of, you know, pays pays dividends because there are people that I was able to connect with and meet through that process that I'm still in touch with today that are consumers of Marlowe based on products and and shoppers and support us when they see the product in store. And so, you know, the lifetime value of, of something like that outside of just that $10,000 loan is almost unquantifiable because it's, it's, um, it goes beyond that cash. So yeah, it was a great experience and it's a really easy payback process. It's interest free, which is huge um, because interest rates on a lot of traditional loans, even from government, government subsidized organizations um, can be very high. And uh, so having that additional money to just put back into your business and reinvest and not have to pay out as, as interest is, is a tremendous value. I agree. And listeners who are not familiar with Kiva, it's based on Grameen Bank, uh, Mohammed Junis from Bangladesh, which was kind of like access to credit for people that didn't have credit. And so all over the world right now, you know, our company does this. You can give loans uh, directly to people, interest-free loans. Um, and the U.S. model, it's direct with uh, people like Marlo. And yeah, it's just like non-predatory. It's a nonprofit for microfinance. And there's so many scammy, like, get approved for like $5,000 instantly, et cetera, et cetera. But they are the real deal. So I encourage everyone to check that out as, a, as an option. And, and moving on, so, you know, digital marketing, I, I come from that background as well with like a lot of SEO and conversion optimization. And 
you mentioned that like single wraps biscotti on the first page of Google. I'm curious about uh, online for you, Amazon Fresh sales leads for brick and mortar. You know, what's been your experience online and, and what percentage would you say it is of your business right now? So online right now is only about 5% of our business, but it's a huge, a huge intention of mine to, to grow that to up to 40% um, of revenue over the course of the next 12 months. Because just from a consumer behavior standpoint, the data that we're seeing um, from, from studies done by organizations like Morgan Stanley is that people are really transitioning to more grocery shopping online and, and our product can fall into that grocery bucket. So I think there's a big opportunity and we really want to make sure we're poised to, to take advantage of that. So I, you know, we have Marlowe's Bake Shop products on Amazon, like you said, um, both kind of traditional Amazon and then Amazon Fresh. And we have our own e-commerce um, portal on marlowsbakeshop.com. Um, and then there's a few other online marketplaces that we've been on for several years at this point that don't necessarily drive a lot of volume, but we've had buyers reach out to us because they've found us there because maybe it's a community of artisan products or you know, just a place to find products that have not gone totally conventional or mainstream yet. And it's a resource for something special. And so they've reached out to us because they've seen us there. So I am a huge proponent of, of online. Um, you know, like you said, it's, it's a very trackable place to pursue sales because you can get so much data from the click path of, of the people that are visiting your site or not visiting your site. And so it's been a great experience. I mean, I think a lot of our, what we'll tend to pursue over the next 12 months will be Amazon, uh, probably more than any other online channel. And then we're going to be redoing MarlowesBakeShop.com to, to make it a more user-friendly experience, really easy to navigate, um, and ideally to have it integrate with with Amazon as well. So that way, um, I think I think because it's so easy for people to pay for things on Amazon, it that's one of the reasons they do such high volume of sales. And same for me as a consumer, like two clicks and I'm done, great. And so if we can integrate the Amazon payment um, option onto our site, we can drive more volume through Amazon as a platform, but also just make it easier for people to to get our products in their hands and, and in their mouths and their bellies. I love that. And I and uh, and Marlo, I see a a theme here. You mentioned this with Kiva. A lot of times in business, you need to think about the indirect, sometimes not even tangible, but just like the benefits of being on some of these other marketplaces, they might be small, they may not be a whole lot of sales, but just the familiarity, like think of like the big brands like Coca-Cola, just seeing it mm -hmm. and just the image it gives for for your company, just like the the people that make Kiva loans to you, right? That, that mm -hmm. make those loans to you and the, and the connection that is there. So that's, that's an asset in itself. And just... For listeners that may not understand, can you just tell us about the difference between being a seller on Amazon versus Amazon Fresh, if there's any difference? So the way that we got our products in Amazon Fresh is we were actually approached by a company called Fresh Nation that I'm not entirely clear on the sort of the hierarchy of how they interweave with Amazon um, as a whole, but they're, from what I understand, they're like a grocery subsidy, and so everything that they buy from us goes on to Amazon Fresh and 
So they just place POs and they promote our product to their Amazon Fresh community and they manage all volume, whereas the product that we sell on Amazon goes through POs from Vendor Central and we control the images, the uh, the language that gets associated with our product, um, and we recommend a price point. So the same same platform, potentially the same audience, but two different ways. And, and I find that redundancy to be helpful because the more places people can find our products, the better. So even, you know, even if 10 different listings show up when you search Marlowe's Bake Shop on Amazon, um, and half of those are Amazon Fresh, and half of those are just traditional Amazon, Hopefully we can capture that customer because they'll be participating in one of those two programs, if not both. Amazing. Yeah. So Fresh Nation, uh, anyone listening, that might be a a place to check out. And again, listeners, this podcast can be found at foodstartupspodcast.com slash Marlos, M-A-R-L-O-S. Okay. So another thing that we talked about before the episode, and we've already mentioned during the episode that grocery is tough, but coffee. It's, it's a perfect fit. So tell us about how you've started to get into coffee shops and where you see that going. Absolutely. So, I mean, that was really the first place that I, I initially went before I even had packaging for my product. I thought, okay, well, the first year we were sort of in development before I quit my full-time job and we were designing the packaging and sampling out the product and finding ingredient suppliers. Um, I and still Marla, really to- quick, I just want to interrupt you here because I want to clarify for the audience. When you go sampling, was this just walking door to door? Was this email, calling? How did you do it? I did a lot of cold calling first just to find out who the right contact would be. And then I would say, hey, can I come and bring you some samples? Um, or can I send you some samples? And that way I had a specific person and it wasn't just like dropping samples off into the ether at like a random coffee shop and then not knowing who to follow up with. I always like having like a very specific contact um, to work with. So I would do that within coffee shops in San Francisco and, and started selling the product bulk. So sort of like more of a food service option. And we would give them a jar and we had Marlowe's Bake Shop stickers made with our logo. And so we tried to start building up brand awareness and, um, and I would sell it by the pound. And I can't remember what the rest of your question was. Well, no, that was it. Coffee. Coffee. Yeah, 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 that's how we got into it. So that's how we got into it. And then when we did have packaging, um, the intention was always to have both a grocery package or one that was, you know, a larger format, which is our five ounce box, and then have one that was made for coffee shops. Because, I mean, really, when you go into a coffee shop these days, like, you probably, you know, maybe there's one brand of biscotti and it's, it's probably going to be that really very traditional, very, very crunchy Italian style. Maybe it's an almond flavor profile or it's an anise kind of licorice flavor profile. And ours are really different. And so we saw an opportunity there to sort of update a very classic product and put a contemporary twist on it. And so it was always, always the intention to do an individually wrapped cookie that we could offer coffee shops. And so within the first year that we had that package product, we went to a trade show called Coffee Fest. And, um, and just had a tabletop there. And that was really great because it was primarily roasters, roasting equipment, and coffee suppliers. Um, and there was not a lot of food vendors or food exhibitors, I should say. And so we were, um, you know, one of a few instead of other trade shows where we're one of thousands of food suppliers. And the audience there, the attendees were coffee shops and coffee chains and um, distributors and which was great because it exposed us to a lot of new customers, but it also was where we were able to pick up our first coffee distributor who purchases um, cases of our product and then ships it out to to coffee shops all over the country along with the syrups that they need or the coffee beans that they need or equipment that they need. And so it's kind of a one-stop shop for 
coffee shop owners and baristas. So that was a great experience. And we sort of parlayed that into becoming a member of the Specialty Coffee Association and and securing a lot of the sort of database information from them of their membership. And now it's just a matter of going through their membership base and trying to work with the uh, the bigger chains all the way down to the, the smaller independent coffee shops and ideally get all of them on board. I love it. You have a really good strategy there. And I think it's not so easy to find, to be honest, but get that trade show where you're kind of stand out, you're a big fish in a small pond. And at the same time, the right buyers are there because you can be the big fish in a small pond at a trade show, but maybe there's just, there's only like two or three buyers that are, are in your niche. So great job with, with coffee fest. Um, and I think that's something that we could all take away looking at trade shows from a kind of a, a lateral thinking model. What are the trade shows where my competition is not going to be at where I can maybe get some exposure in a, in a different way than, than we've been doing things? Yeah. Like being the peripheral product, you know, not being the primary focus, um, but being a complementary product. Yeah, right on. Uh, okay. And Marlo, so we've talked about the, the roller coaster. And as you grow, you just kind of get bigger and bigger challenges and obstacles to to overcome. And I uh, I, I wanted to mention like uh, Mark Manson in, in his latest book just talks about how finding your passion, he would also define this as another perspective, finding your passion is just what are some of the, the problems and struggles that I enjoy facing and going through. And now that your company's growing and, and looking to up the online sales, which anyone who's dealt with grocery sounds like an awesome idea, no offense grocery, but it's just a lot easier. Uh, you have all the control. Now you're kind of at a, a different level, right? Now you're looking for larger investments. So what are some of the, the things besides online that you're gonna focus on in the next six to 12 months? So online is, is a huge focus, but also, just just pursuing alternative channels to grocery, like we certainly won't ignore it, and it's it's a huge, huge player in the space and a massive market. But pursuing online coffee and then the gift channel as a sort of the the tertiary area of focus, because gourmet gifts and kind of food gifts are, are growing to an eighteen billion dollar industry, and and that's not insignificant. And if we can be the biscotti brand that a lot of these gift companies turn to we can capture a fair amount of that that market share for you know the cookies they're going to include in these baskets not only just baskets but any sort of gifting opportunity that's kind of the focus from a, a sales perspective for us and and like i said coffee and we're just hitting hitting coffee really hard because if you can get consumers um, or customers that are going to incorporate your product into their daily their daily life then then that's a huge win and and so if our cookies become something that they enjoy with the cup of tea in the afternoon or their cup of coffee in the morning with their kind of on-the-go breakfast, that, that would be a huge win. And we found doing some studies that people are actually eating our products several times a day. And there's there's not a lot of products in the food space that people can say, you know, our, our cookies are being enjoyed three times per day by some of our customers. And so we want to try and replicate that behavior as, as much as possible. And so putting our putting our products and places that are going to allow for that is, is a, a focus. Love it. Well, Marlo, if listeners want to get in touch with you, how can they find you? They can find me um, by just emailing me. It's marlo at marlosbakeshop.com um, or they can fill out the contact form on our, on our website and it will uh, get forwarded to me through through our team here. Yeah, and I, I would love to, to speak with people. There were so many folks that have helped me along the way and 
um, and still help me um, and that are very generous with their advice and their experience and their wisdom. And um, so if I can help anyone uh, with, with any question they may have um, with, you know, starting a food business, I'm, I'm always happy to. Great. Well, thank you so much. And I hope to have you on in the future as uh, Marlo's Bake Shop continues to grow. Thanks for having me. It's fun. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, find us online at foodstartupspodcast.com.